Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Voice of Olympus. I'm Hercules Invictus, and I'm thrilled at uh, the era we'll be covering tonight on the show. Our first guest is Ellen J. B. Maxton, and Ellen is the author of a great book called The Ascension, a handbook for God's children. Greetings and welcome back to the show, Ellen. Hi, Hercules. How are you tonight? I'm doing incredibly uh, awesome. And yourself? <laughs> Very well. <laughs> Very well. I'm yeah. glad to hear <laughs> Now, you have been, uh, over these past few months, uh, um, introducing us to a wider universe, uh, a universe that is uh, uh, vaster than the one we currently uh, live in. And uh, you've been introducing us to uh, the theosophical worldview. Uh, which is also called uh, the I Am uh, Worldview by many in this day and age. Uh, And uh, I want to thank you for that. So I'm looking forward to how you further uh, expand our minds and open our eyes tonight. Okay, that's great. You know, Hercules, every time I've been talking about various things, the twin flames and how to reach your inner self, you've been, you know, pressuring me to talk about the Ascended Masters more, talk about the Ascended Masters more. So if we're going to learn more about Ascended Masters, the first Ascended Master, who you sounded like you were familiar with, is El Moria. Yes. I want to go into him quite a bit today so people have a better understanding of who El Moria is. Because he is an Ascended Master who is really close to those who are on the path. He's sort of dedicated his, he has made his ascension, and he's dedicated himself towards helping people who are very serious at uh, growing themselves and who are dedicated to their own path of self-perfectionment, of uh, becoming up higher and higher, and uh, their goal is the ascension. And so he's really dedicated to that, and 
sometimes if people really have a better understanding of who somebody is, they feel a little closer to them and they can feel more comfortable in calling out to them because, um, you know, and one of the things Almoria says is, you know, they'll never come to you if you don't call with them. They will never interfere in your own free will. So that's why when I explained last time I was on how important it was for me to have the names of the Ascended Masters, when you call on them, they can come to you. They will never interfere otherwise. So that's a really important thing. So I wanted to go a little more deeply into El Moria, his past embodiment, and some of the things he's looking for in a chila uh, or a student that, um, you know, and he's there for us. He really wants to help us, but he is a little bit demanding, and he wants you to be serious about your path as a student of the Ascent Masters. So um, I'm going to just give a little background of his past life okay, sure. to get a sense of how yeah, how he worked really hard <laughs> to self-perfect himself. And, um, you know, life isn't easy. What can we say, right? No, it isn't. Okay. So, yeah, so El Moria, he is uh, the lord or the Chohan of the blue ray. It's the first way, ray, which is the ray of the will of God. Okay, and um, he has he is the chief of the Darjeeling Council of the Great White Brotherhood. And the Great White Brotherhood is the Brotherhood of Ascended Beings, the white meaning the white light of their, you know, self-perfectionment when they have, you know, all the colors of the rays developed, it becomes a white light, great light. Um, And he is the Chohan of the first ray of the hierarchy of the etheric temple of goodwill over Darjeeling, India. He's the founder of the Summit Lighthouse, and many people might have heard of that. That was with uh, Mark and Elizabeth Clare Prophet. There are many, many teachings that uh, all of the Ascended Masters have brought forth uh, through both Mark and Elizabeth Clare Prophet, and they are no longer in embodiment. And I will tell everyone who wants a lot of teachings, there's just a plethora of teachings in every which way you can uh, yes. Find them on the website that's called TSL.org. It's The Summit Lighthouse, TSL.org. Lots and lots of information there. Free information. You can subscribe to Pearls of Wisdom, which are um, dictations that have been brought far, forth in the past. And the dictations that the masters bring forth, they say each one of them is written on 144 levels, which is really important. You might get one and say, oh, I know this, and then you read it again and you go, oh, I don't know that. It's really interesting, depending on where your consciousness is, as you read it each time you see different things. So it's pretty cool. Um, So getting back to El Moria, throughout his embodiment in the the present hour to the ascended state, he was the son of Enoch who walked with God. Now, when I went to look up this as I was doing the research for this, there were two Enochs. Um, one was the son of Jared and one was the son of Cain. Uh, Enoch, who was the son of Jared, is who he was one of the sons with. I'm not sure which son, honestly. One was Methuselah, but then he had other sons. So I'm not sure on that. So I thought that was interesting. Um, okay. And uh, he represents the godly attributes. The blue ray is the godly attributes of courage, certainty, power, forthrightness, self-reliance, dependability, faith, 
initiative. Okay, all of these are really um, strong. The Blu-ray is like the blueprint of our lives. Um, when you have a lot of Blu-ray in you, uh, it, you know, you have a lot of determination. It's something that breaks through and gets us going in the morning is the Blu-ray. Okay, and then we fill it in with the yellow, the wisdom, and the pink, and the love. And they're all very important. And uh, one thing it was laid on my heart to put out there, uh, we have what's called a three-fold flame implanted in the center of our heart. Um, mm-hmm. And that is up to us to grow. Now, a little secret that I want to share that, to me, it made a huge difference. Um, sometimes you know that you have maybe a lot of wisdom and a lot of love, but maybe you're lacking in that initiative, that determination, right? And so if you think of your flames as like you have this really big pink flame, this really big yellow, but this little tiny blue, right? The best mm-hmm. way to make the flame in the heart grow is to, to work on the shortest ray, the one that you have least developed. And the reason for that is when your three flames are balanced, your heart flame, the threefold flame, begins to spin like a little dreidel, a little top. It begins to spin when it's balanced. It doesn't fall over. And when anything what happens is it naturally expands through centrifugal force. Do you get that? Uh, yes, I can see that. So, so basically, me, that, that work on the things you need to work on the things you're not uh, strong in. Right. And when they get balanced, then your heart flame will naturally start spinning and expanding. So people say, oh, I want to grow my heart flame, you know, and they don't know how. Well, work on the shortest flame. And if you really evaluate yourself, you know, some people are really determined and forthright and have a lot of love, but they haven't really developed their wisdom, you know, like you're not studying a lot of (laughs) that kind of thing. Everybody sort of really evaluate, you know who you are. And to work on the shortest flame until they start getting balanced. And then your heart flame will naturally start spinning and growing. So for me, that was a really, really important teaching that I learned. Um, and for me, I thought the Blu-ray was the one I really had to work on. So I've been really working on that for a few, quite a few years. And, and I, I, I feel like I've been rewarded for it a little bit. And it's still, you know, it's something I have to really push to have that determination to stick with something, to have a constancy, to finish things and, you know, things like that. So whatever your shortest one is, that's where to work, to grow your flame. So anyway, I'll just sort of put that as an aside. I think it's an important teaching yes, that yes, I, think I wanted to share. Yeah. Okay. So back to Amoria. Um, let me see. I want to talk about his uh, – he had many embodiments. He's worn a crown of authority, ruling many king, kingdoms wisely and well. His rulership has not been that of a dictator demanding that his subjects submit to his will, but rather his interpretation of government is God over men, and his concept of true statesmen is God's over men. So when you think of a government operating well, if you think of it as God's over men, they're representative of God, you know, ordering life on earth. So that's, you know, but to do God's will in doing that. So that's a good thing. 
So he inspired uh, his subjects, the illumined obedience to the holy will of God. Now, he, one of his embodiments was Abraham in 2100 B.C., and that's an amazing thing. That was a really long time ago, and he had you yes. know, such mastery really that long ago. It's sort of breathtaking to think. It took him many embodiments, but a lot of times people choose not to make their ascension. They want to stay here and help man on earth, so, you know, who knows. But um, anyway... Uh, as Abraham, he was the prototype and progenitor of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, of course, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all trace their origins back to him. Sort of amazing. He was a father of, you know, when, a lot of times when I think of Judaism and Islam today, it's two brothers always battling. You know, So that's <laughs> really, you know, he had two sons that are, that are the leaders of, or the progenitors of both of them. So, okay, so uh, although scholars once widely assumed that he was either a mythical figure or a nomadic or semi-nomadic Semite, archaeological finds since World War I have corroborated, corroborated that the picture of Abraham that is given in the Bible itself, which is pretty amazing, okay? So he's the archetype of the man of faith. Uh, most of us know the story of um, his son. He was asked, to once uh, take his son up and give him as uh, he waited a really long time. He and his wife, Sarah, had them in their 80s or 90s, and he was asked to sacrifice him. And uh, he was really challenged on his faith. And he he knew the word of God, and he knew he was asked to do that, but God knew he went to do that, and he said, nope. You have passed the test of faith. You believed in me, but I don't want you to do that. So he stopped him. So that was good. That now, was good. Um, he was also, yeah. <laughs> but it was a test of his faith. I mean, looking back, who would believe? But, you know, I guess if you're really that close, you would recognize it as such. So it's amazing. Um, it's, <laughs> I think of that as really amazing. So anyway, also, he was one of the three wise men, Melchior. And the two other wise men were um, Kasumi was Balthazar, Master Kasumi was Balthazar, and Master Dwalkul was, um, who was the other one? I cannot remember the name of him. But they were the blue, yellow, and the pink ray masters. Today they're ascended and they work together a lot with us. Um, but they were the three uh, wise men who came at the, uh, and, and also when Jesus was being born, uh, Saint Germain was Saint Joseph and okay. Mary. So that's really sort of to put it all in perspective how much they've been working with us for a really long time. So um okay, so he was uh, Melchior. And then he was Thomas a Beckett a Beckett, which was a chancellor in England under Henry the Second. And um he was made Chancellor and then he was made Archbishop, both of them, but he knew that his administrative abilities, he knew that they would conflict because he wanted to do the archbishop completely. So he gave up his uh, chancellorship and he started sort of doing everything that the archbishop to do, being very, very faithful in that position. And he was um, sometimes doing things that... uh, 
the nobles didn't like because of that. And so eventually he was brutally murdered in Canterbury Cathedral when four knights of the court took literally the king's remarks that wished to be rid of this turbulent priest and, uh, and they beheaded him there, I think, where they killed him. Um, so he was uncompromising to the end. And more than 500 healing miracles were attributed to him only a few years after his death. And he was canonized three years later after he was killed. And then um, that was, let me see if I the years, it was back in 1118. Oh, before that, he was King Arthur at, in Camelot. Okay. And that was another, that was before Thomas Beckett, he was King Arthur, and he was summoned, he summoned the knights to the round table and the ladies of the court on the quest of the Holy Grail to attain, uh, through initiation, the mysteries of Christ. And also in that um, in embodiment, St. Germain was Merlin, who arranged all of that for Elmoria to be the King Arthur. He's it's sort of like... You know, they all have been working together forever. So you see all of these lifetimes to attempt different things to uh, bring the highest kind of, you know, um, the will of God in, in different mm-hmm. modes of ruling around, which was good. And so now, okay. that, then another, that's, one of the incarnations huh? where, that's, that's one of the incarnations that I've worked with, with the... Uh, uh, with uh, Arthur and with uh, Merlin and with the Grail Mysteries. Uh, and uh, uh, after many years of not focusing on that, now it's back in my spirituality unexpectedly uh, with the uh, Order of the Golden Fleece. Uh, and uh, I've gotten a lot of insights into their incarnations uh, in what has survived as uh, mythology. And uh, mm-hmm. so they, they have been with us for a very long time, and they've been working on the same types of things for a very, a very long time. <laughs> did you did you know that King Arthur was an incarnation of Elmoria? Yes, I did, and oh, uh, that's did. why okay. I resonated very powerfully with uh, the Grail mysteries and with uh, Merlin. And uh, uh-huh. back in the seventies, Merlin uh, was very present uh, in uh, my channelings. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So good. So more, uh, he had another embodiment as Sir Thomas More. Also, he was, uh, he had his little utopia there and he sort of ruled there. And what happened here, he was also made an archbishop during this lifetime where this was under King Henry VIII. And um, King Henry VIII wanted to marry Anne Boleyn and get a divorce. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sir Thomas would not allow that. And that, again, he was beheaded in 1535. Um, And he said, I'm the king's good servant, but I'm God's first. And he was canonized for that 400 years later in 1935. So it's really interesting. So it's sort of a repeat thing. And I think that um, the same person was Henry II and Henry VIII. So there's karma they keep making together. So anyway, um, and then here's an interesting lifetime. It was, he was Akbar the Great. And it was the founder of the Mughal Empire in India and the greatest of its rulers. Yeah. 
During his reign, he ended all discrimination against the Hindus and accepted them as, um, into the government, serving on an equal basis with the Muslims. His policies were considered to be among the most enlightened of his time. Let me I'm reading a couple of things here that I think are interesting. Uh, it spanned a large part of India, Afghanistan, and modern Pakistan and made him the richest and most powerful monarch on earth. Uh, he ruled for 50 years, exercising tolerance and an enlightenment astounding in one descended from the line of, the line of Tamerlane and Genghis Khan. Wow. Uh, distinctly apart, yeah, distinctly apart from his ancestors, Akbar has been described by a leading historian as one of the few successful examples of Plato's philosopher king. And um, uh, it says here, a Portuguese priest described him as being of a stature and of a type of countenance well fitted to his royal dignity so that one could easily recognize, even at first glance, that he is the king. His forehead is broad and open, and his eyes so bright and flashing that they seem like a sea shimmering in the sunlight. His expression is tranquil, serene, and open, full of dignity, and when he is angry, of awful majesty. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the things, I, I bought this a few years ago, and I just wanted to, in case anybody is interested, it's, fabulous film it's like three discs i bought this i must have gotten it on amazon or something i don't know it's called joda akbar akbar j-o-d g sorry j-o-d-h-a-a new word akbar which was his name but joda was one of the princesses and hindu princess he he married and here it's their love story it's fabulous it's wow. like three discs Big film, very, very big. You know, I mean, lots of great scenery and it's the costuming is amazing. But you really get a sense of what that was like during that time and how he made friends with the Indian kings and things like that. So it's it's a great, great film, Joda Akbar. So he also Akbar was um, his son was Shah Jahan, who was Kasumi. And he built the Taj Mahal. Hmm. Did you know that? I mean, that's how no, the, the artwork, that the artwork and everything. It was during his time. It was supposed to be that art and poetry flourished. It was a time of great peace. You know, cultures could come and go, and you know, and you see that that um, Shah Jahan's, you know, the, the Taj Mahal. The the beauty of it is just phenomenal and he had built another temple that wasn't quite as beautiful as that it's no longer exists or it exists today maybe in Afghanistan but not quite as beautiful as that one and then uh, apparently what happened my understanding is um, Shah Jahan's son just couldn't stand all the peace <laughs> it was too boring <laughs> for him so he, he became a warlord and the whole thing fell apart you know, that's sad. <laughs> so that was, yeah, sad. So, okay, so we get back. Um, so then after that, he was in England again, Irish, and the Irish poet Thomas More, again, Thomas More, but the last one was Thomas More, M O R E, and this is Thomas More, M O O R E, an Irish poet. And, uh-huh. um, yeah, and uh, let's see where else he. Um, So basically, um, 
Moria incarnates uh, also, as do a lot of the ascended masters, to better guide uh, human uh, um, evolution. And uh, mm -hmm. he, he focuses most on the first ray, of which he's now the Chohan. So this is uh, uh, the power of decision, of the divine will, um, uh, and uh, of uh, living the um, life that was intended by the, the divine. And all the incarnations you shared uh, show us uh, the extent of his tireless uh, efforts uh, to bring uh, all this into being. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, his final embodiment, I was just losing myself here. In his final embodiment, El Moria was born at Rajput Prince in India and later became a monk, frequenting the retreats of the Himalayas. You know, that's where his ascended uh, Darjeeling Council is now. As the Master M, he, together with Kathumi and Jawal Kul, think about how often they work together, right? attempted to acquaint mankind with the workings of the law and hierarchy through the writings of Madame Blavatsky. Together mm -hmm. with Master K.H. and St. Germain, he founded the Theosophical Society, and he made his ascension in 1898. And he continues his work for God government on earth through the flame of goodwill and his embodied Sheila's. So... Wow. He writes, and yeah, I know, in 1995, I'll quote some of his dictation. Constancy is the key virtue that I must have in those who truly desire to be one with me. If I would train you personally, beloved, I must have from you an unflinching constancy whereby you maintain a level, a steady level of absorption of the blue flame of the will of God and thus enter, enter day by day into the sacred fire of the first ray. You must be willing to take any rebuke, any correction, to take it swiftly, and then to swiftly self-correct. And then he says, let's see, I tell you, beloved, when you keep yourself saturated in the blue ray and you are alert to every out-of-step state of mind that you might even consider entertaining, you will find that I shall become your champion. Once I become the champion of a chila, I will work with that chila to the end. Thus, beloved, do not think that I take lightly the taking on of a chila. Many of you are chilas in the becoming, but I must test and try you for many years, sometimes for lifetimes, before I receive the signal from Almighty God himself that I might burden myself by taking on another student. Realize this, beloved. It is well to make yourself a devotee of the will of God. For as a devotee, you will increase and increase and increase many shades of blue rings around your four lower bodies and the circumference of your life. And when you have proven yourself under fire and in many situations, untenable situations, devastating situations, and have come out right side up, you will know that we have a chila. We will know that we have a chila of the first order, and we will receive you that you might be anointed before the council of Indarjeeling. Wow. <laughs> Did you ever wonder why you were turned upside down so many times? <laughs> so anyway, as the chief of the Darjeeling Council and the Great White Brotherhood, Moria presides at roundtable meetings in his retreat of God's will in Darjeeling 
where the souls of the world statesmen and men and women of integrity in God's will will convene to study under this living master. Moria has a second retreat in El Capitan in Yosemite Valley, California. His keynote is Pomp and Circumstance. His flowers are the blue rose and the forget-me-not, and his fragrance is sandalwood. So. Can you explain those a little bit? Explain about the fragrance and the keynote, and uh, um, how do those come into play in, in one's interactions with Omoria? Well, his keynote is like his vibration. It's something, I don't know how it gets to be chosen for you, whether you choose your own or it's assigned to you, but that, that thing is like, bum, 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 that's the pomp and circumstance. Okay. When you, when you hear that, you know, I'm sure it's familiar to everybody, but when you hear it, you can feel that intensity of the Blu-ray. You can feel yourself standing upright. Your spine straightens. It's like you're ready for anything. You know what I mean? You can just feel <laughs> that. And it, it sort of like demonstrates that kind of vibration that he would have. So that's how I sort of do that. And um, the forget-me-not, well, just to me, the flower, it's like I always feel that Omoria really doesn't forget us. And, you know, ever since I've learned about him, I never can forget him. So that's mm-hmm. sort of what that means to me, that he he will always be there for us when we need him. It's like crazy, but it's true. I have found that anyway. So I don't know. That's what it means to me. Okay, I found in my interactions that uh, uh, Moria is uh, very stern but very loving. Yes, I I feel that too. Um, I I feel his love so strong. I'll share with you one experience I had. I I don't know where I was, whether I was decreeing or meditating or whatever, but all of a sudden I was. I was prostate, you know, on my knees, head to the carpet. It was the Persian carpet. And I was, I was a servant and I knew I was in Abraham's presence. I was, I was like a servant in his tent. I don't know if it was a tent or whatever, but I was, I knew it was with Abraham and I was a servant and I was so filled with love. It was like, unbelievable experience that I had and it made me realize how long I know him and I'll never forget that moment you know it just happened and um, I must have been in a pretty either deep meditation or decree or something and um, I just was there and you know prostrate on the ground with my forehead was on the carpet and I knew I was at the foot but not that close maybe six feet away and he was sitting on Abraham is the father of three of the world's uh, major uh, religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. That's a lot for somebody to bring into the world. <laughs> <laughs> what a responsibility. I know. Yeah. So, and I think he was... Um, he tied to, um, oh, I'm trying to remember who that was. One of the great, oh, I'm slipping my mind. He's a very high, high being in the Old Testament that he met on the road and he gave him a tithe. 
Melchizedek. Oh, Melchizedek? Mm-hmm. Melchizedek, yeah. Melchizedek, yeah. the king of Salem, yes. Uh, one of the groups mm-hmm. that I work with, they're, they're on once a month uh, also. Uh, they work very closely with the, with the Melchizedeks. Mm-hmm. So they're very closely connected. Yeah. So, yeah. That is uh, very profound. Uh, I am happy for you that you had that uh, experience. Uh, and the fact that uh, um, you felt uh, such love emanating from uh, um, Abraham. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's what I wanted to go into. Who else could we go into? Kutumi? Kutumi would be great. Kutumi's, let me check the time. We can, we can take a short break uh, in between. Okay, we will okay. take a short break. Okay. And uh, then we will uh, continue and uh, the grail, which are part of uh, Moria's Mysteries, is called the Cauldron of Keridwen by the Celts. Uh, and it plays a very important part in their transformative mythology. So we're going to listen to Dave the Bard's Cauldron Born during our break. And then we'll be back with Ellen Maxson and the Ascended Masters. Cauldrons brew. 
time Your life a construction One day you will see Through the illusion And into the dream Lady, stir your cauldron well Chant your words and sing your spells Deep within this darkened hall Hear the goddess Kered when called Come and taste of the cauldron's brew And magic she will give to you You will dance in the eye of the storm Your Kered when's children, the cauldron born Germain, you said before, was uh, Saint Merlin. Germain. Saint Germain. Okay, so yeah, he is, because, 
Right. He's the Lord of the Purple Way, which is like more of alchemy, of transmutation. Okay. And that, that, Mer, that suits Merlin, right, who was into the magic and the transmutation of things, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that fits there. Yeah, I don't know if Kathumi, if he was in the Camelot, that's interesting. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, I know. Oh, and as I, I'm reading here, I was... I was not correct about him. Uh, he was Shah Jahan, but he was the grandson of Akbar. Okay. Yeah, and and the son in between the two was the one that sort of like screwed things up. <laughs> Shah Jahan came in and he brought back the cultural stuff again. So that was nice, right? So, okay. So let me get into Kathumi. He's on the yellow ray. He's the lord of the second ray of the yellow ray, which is okay. wisdom. Okay. And he now serves also uh, with Jesus. They have the, uh, the offices of the world teachers. And there is a really beautiful book called Prayer and Meditation, and it's by Jesus and Kathumi. It's dictations okay. directly by Jesus and Kathumi, prayer and meditation. It says Elizabeth Clare Prophet, but the directly teachings of G, of Saint Germain and Jesus, and that that is like an amazingly beautiful book. So I just wanted to bring that up because they have the offices of the world teachers. Okay, um, this beloved master is the hierarch of the Temple of Illumination in Kashmir which is also okay. known as the Cathedral of Nature. He's the headmaster of the Brothers of the Golden Ray and of the Golden Robe and trains students who are on the Ray of Wisdom in the Art of Meditation and the Science of the Word, in the Science of the Word, which is the decree in using the word, uh, in order that they may become master psychologists of their own psyche or soul. Okay, and he is really here to help us unravel our own psychology and the things that are holding us back okay that's that's one of the things he's really working on and some of the past very much needed and um one of the things that he has revealed was um let me see i was just reading this let me refresh my memory on this um He's known as a master psychologist and his assignment to assist healers in the resolution of their psychology. And in 1985, he announced the dispensation from Lord Maitreya. This dispensation is my assignment to work with each one of you individually for your physical health and for your healing of your psychology, that we might swiftly get to the very cause and core of physical as well as spiritual and emotional conditions, uh, that there be no more setbacks or indulgences and surely not two steps forward and one step back. Kathumi is given a key to understanding our psychology in his teaching on the dweller of the threshold and the electronic belt. The momentums of untransmuted karma in orbit around the nucleus of the synthetic self or the carnal mind form what looks like an electronic belt of misqualified energy around the lower portion of man's physical body. It's diagrammed at the point of the solar plexing extending down in a negative spiral to below the feet. And this, co- this conglomerate 
of human creation forms a dense force field resembling the shape of a kettle drum, referred to as the realm of the subconscious or the unconscious. The electronic belt contains the records of unredeemed karma from all your embodiments. At the eye of this wow. vortex of un- yeah, at the eye of this vortex of untransmuted energy is the consciousness of the anti-self personified in the dweller of the threshold, the dweller on the threshold, which must be slain before one can attain full Christhood. Now, this is the part of the self that keeps bugging you and bugging you and coming back and coming back, and it's got to be chipped away. And, you know, address, I mean, you have to look at it like your enemy. Um, okay. It's something that you've, cre- you've created in, in the past, and it keeps, it. it's almost like, okay, here you have the threefold flame of the heart, and you have, um, it's like from your higher self, your I am presence through the silver cord, you get light coming moment by moment. Breath by breath, you're given light of God. And every action, every breath, every word, every thought that you put out that is of light goes out, blesses the world, circles the earth, comes back to you, and ascends back to your higher self, your I am presence, and starts building your treasure in heaven. And that becomes your I am presence gets. And that's what everybody has um, their own vibration their own color their own beautiful stained glass being on the on the top because everybody has different ways of taking the pure light of god and putting it out in love and mercy and wisdom and different ways but when you get Mm -hmm. this light of god and you put it out in anger or misqualification or anything less than god perfection it goes around the earth and now it comes back to you. It slaps you in the face, often in, you know, returning karma, the same thing that you put out, which wasn't good. But the energy is now misqualified with a weight that is less than God perfection. It cannot rise back to your I am presence. And it hangs around you and usually from the solar plexus down. It cannot go above the solar plexus. It's lower energies. It's been misqualified. And this is your energy. It sort of has a DNA link on it that is your code. And it travels with you from lifetime to lifetime until you transmute it and it can be raised up again and go back to your I am presence. And this is what most people are just bogged down with. And they don't know why. And it's almost like the miracle of the violet flame, of the invocation of the violet flame that St. Germain has brought to the earth, the gift of fire for the Aquarian age is the greatest gift because it can literally transmute this energy that otherwise you would have to live through to requalify it. You would have to live through as many embodiments that it took you to create it unless you were a total saint and transmuting it in in record time. But the violet flame, when you invoke it, can go to this thing and it chisels away at it, chisels away at it. And how the violet flame works, it's like, you know how the electron, the proton, and the neutron, they're really tiny little things in 99% Mm -hmm. space going around, you know, in the atom. Um, And in that space, the dense energy, it's like tar. It's stuck. 
And that is what, you know, like St. Germain described it. It's like tarry substance. Can, it, it's like so dense that the only thing that can liberate it other than requalifying it through loving actions or some, you know, good, good vibrations is the violet flame is such a high vibration, just like ultraviolet in the physical, the violet flame mm-hmm. in the higher realms is so fast. It makes those molecules spin so quickly. They act like centrifugal force. They throw off the negative energy and it just propels itself back into light. It's an amazing thing, and it's a tremendous gift of God to invoke the violet flame and to put your own dark energies into it. And it is work. I mean, yes, <laughs> you know, sure. it takes a lot of invocation, but at least you don't have to live through all those situations again, right? So right. people who really understand how the violet flame works and takes it seriously can do some of that every day, and it is very miraculous. I've shared that with many people who are like saying, oh, why can't I get a good job? Why can't I get a boyfriend? You know, like people just mm-hmm. stuck in the same situation over and over. And I say, do yourself a little, just an experiment. Get a couple of violet flame decrees and do it like five or ten minutes a day. And make your invocation when you do it. Say, oh, just Take this situation and transmute it into light, illumination, and love. And you do the invocation, and gradually you will see things in your life breaking through. Now, I'll, I'll share a little situation. One of my dear, very dear girlfriends. Oops, hold on a minute. Okay. Okay. I had a timer, and I wanted to keep that up for myself, so... Uh, I wouldn't, it wouldn't take me by surprise. I'll give you um, a little, one of my girlfriends who was looking for a job, but she didn't want anything like too strenuous, but she wanted a decent paying job that she really liked, right? Uh-huh. And the right thing wasn't coming. And, and she's been doing her violet flame, really, really working a lot this past year on a lot of good things with that, right? Well, mm-hmm. anyway, a job came to her just sort of miraculously, um, that she's working in the Girl Scouts, one of the, you know, she's not in my state, she's somewhere else, working as a receptionist in the Girl Scout headquarters. Now, do you know who founded the Boy Scouts? No, who did? St. Germain. St. Germain. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so I said, there you go. St. Germain is giving you a gift. She's been doing her violet flame <laughs> <laughs> and she's working. What a clean cut play, place to be in, right? I mean, it's like the Girl Scouts, and she loves people, and she's very good with children, you know. And she's just there, you know, as a receptionist, but she's uh, actually getting a promotion with them to help market and stuff like that. So, um, but it was like, I got a chuckle out of it. It's like St. Germain has such a good sense of humor, and he gifted her with that beautiful job. Isn't that nice? That is extremely awesome, and uh, it is well worth uh, practicing using the violet uh, flame. I use the violet flame for uh, dissolving um, within myself places where I feel stuck or blocked. Yes. So what I do is I I visualize the violet uh, flame, 
and uh, it uh, dissolves these uh, blockages and it removes uh, whatever uh, obstacles uh, um, are there. And I find that it's a very comforting and effective uh, practice. It is. It is. And I can only encourage everybody to give it an experimental try and to put it, you know, tell, tell the viral flame to go at whatever is your block, because that's exactly what it's there for, is to all these blocks or different things within ourselves that we've built up in the past. And most of the time, we have no clue what it is, but it keeps manifesting. When things start repeating again and again, it's like, oh, what's the cause of this? And you don't really have to understand what the cause is. A lot of times, St. Germain has said, He's like the master of the body. He says, you know, like when you do it, you don't really have to know what's transmuting. Sometimes you will, ha- you will see something pass through your mind, but you really don't. It doesn't really matter. Just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. And, um, you know, it's just it's a miracle that you can really begin to live a life of joy um, rather than burden. Just when you do the violet flame, it's like everything starts changing and it's like gradual, but it does happen pretty quickly. You know, like within, I had another girlfriend who started it and she, you know, didn't have a boyfriend and she had financial problems and whatever, all this stuff, you know. And then like a year or two later, it's like, oh, she always had really old cars that fall apart. (laughs) It's like, she got a nice Cadillac that was a couple of years old. She got a boyfriend that helped take care of her. It's like all this stuff just sort of disappeared. It was like crazy, you know. It's like I've seen it work so many times that you just, all the blocks in your life, because these are things that you have created in the past that are impediments to good things coming to you. And it's your own creation, and so you're the one I mean, God gave us free will, and he doesn't want to take it away from us. It's the greatest gift we were given. So we've created these things. We have to uncreate these things. <laughs> and so if you take it seriously, you know, it, God wants to give you all these good things. It's not like, you know, he's holding it back. You know, it's just that you have these blocks that are preventing them from reaching you. So once you start dissolving them, great things start coming to you, and it's really it's really neat. So it's a, it's a practice that I definitely would encourage everybody to do. But that's what, you know, Kasumi gave us that teaching on the, the, um, the electronic belt, which is, they mm-hmm. call it the kettlefish, you know, the kettle, kettle drum of fish, your, all your old stuff floating around. And it's like, you know, you can, you can get rid of that with the violet flame. So that's something you really want to, the masters are there to assist us and guide us. And they also have universities at night that I tend to be sometimes stay up late reading and stuff like that. Um, they like you to go there before midnight, but you can ask to go to the Ascended Master Retreats to study at night. And a lot of times, whatever you're working on, there's different retreats all over the planet, and you will go there to work on whatever it is that you want to work on, whether it be something psychological there's angels that do everything, you know, so you can make the call for what you're working on and go to the Ascended Master Retreats at night to study that. And, um, you know, you can study your psychology, your archaeology, whatever you want to do. You can do that. So and, or you can just the, say, God, bring me. Hmm? 
on the next episode, how about we explore the different uh, retreats? Right now we're running out of time. And thank okay. you for all the information that you shared. Uh, would you like to tell people how they can uh, uh, purchase your book and learn uh, more between shows? Okay. Um, yes, my book is on Amazon, and it is called The Ascension, A Handbook for God's Children. And as it shows on Amazon, it just in the beginning, it's a, it's a story, but that's not really the main teaching. And unfortunately, you don't really get into the teaching on what you can see. So that's a little bit of a, uh, I have to correct that somehow. But there's more deep teaching than what you can actually see when it says turn the page, which is just a story which leads into it. So I wanted to put that out. My name is Ellen J.B. Maxson. That's M-A-X-S-O-N. So it's called The Ascension, A Handbook for God's Children by Ellen J.B. Maxson. And you can get it on Amazon. And, um, yeah, I think you would enjoy it. It's a good book, a sort of work I've put out yes, for a little while. It's available on Kindle, too, for those who like uh, reading electronically. And the Kindle mm-hmm. uh, version, you can get it immediately. You don't even have to wait for your post office to deliver it. But it's on, it's available through Prime. Uh, so uh, it'll come very quickly if you order a hard copy of the book as well. Right. So just you can get a hard copy or the, the uh, download with Kindle. So either way you want it. So, yeah, I hope you go and buy it. And I think people will enjoy it. So... Well, this has been a pleasure. Same here, Ellen. I look forward to next time. Um, And uh, thank you for all that you've shared uh, tonight. Uh, It's really given us a lot to ponder and uh, experiment with. And uh, I've also tried the uh, Violet uh, Flame, and I can vouch for it. So folks want to experiment with that. Uh, And if you want to discuss it on Facebook, uh, I'll be there to talk about it with you. So thanks again. Uh, We're going to listen to King of Dreams, and then we'll be back for Scholars from the Edge of Time with Nicholas Dyack and Michelle Brittany. Thank you.
Greetings and welcome back to Voice of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus and I am honored to introduce Scholars from the Edge of Time with Nicholas Dyack and Michelle Brittany. Tonight's guest is Danny Delisle, who is a writer and an RPG designer. Greetings and welcome. Hi. Hi. Hi, Danny. I'm looking forward to tonight's show. Uh, Thank you very much. And I hand the scepter of the show over to Michelle and Nicholas, um, and I'll be here listening rapidly. If you need me, just holler. Sure. Uh, Can do. Hi, Danny. It's good to talk to you. Hi. It's great to hear you. (laughs) All right. I didn't lose you, did I? (laughs) So tonight, this is Danny Delisle. She's a member of the Horror Writers Association, along with Michelle and I. Uh, we didn't quite meet last year at StokerCon 2018, although our paths kind of almost crossed, but we all became kind of friends afterwards. Danny is an actress. She does a lot of uh, theater work and voice acting work, but she's also a writer. She's done short stories, but of particular interest is she works on a lot of tabletop RPGs. A lot of games from such as uh, 7C to Conan to Torg, yes, and a whole bunch of other games. So we're hoping to talk to Danny about her writing work, the projects that she's working on, and so on and so forth. So how does that sound? It sounds great. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Well, Danny, I guess the first question would be is, well, I just did the, the thousand-foot view about you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what your background is, what got you into uh, RPG designing, uh, some, uh, you know, biographical stuff about you. Oh, okay. Um, Well, I grew up in New England. Um, So I grew up in northern Vermont, very close to Canada. My hometown is just 60 miles from the Canadian border, and now I live in Texas. So I've lived in a wide variety of places. Um, I got my um, undergraduate degree in anthropology and then my master's degree in English language and literature uh, with creative writing. Um, So I've always been a writer. I kind of thought I wanted to be Indiana Jones when I was a kid, (laughs) which is why I went into anthropology. Um, But then over time, I realized, you know, I'd always written since I was very little And I went into that and loved it. And, you know, I knew that's what I wanted to pursue. I've done a variety of jobs in my life. I've I've been a teacher. I've been a journalist. Um, I've worked at restaurants. I've worked at all sorts of places, retail, just anything you can imagine. But I kind of feel like all of that kind of feeds into everything I write, the vast variety of experiences that I have. Um, so I'm kind of glad that I have all that. Um, how I got into RPG writing itself was um, I've been role playing um, or aware of role playing since I was really young. I was probably maybe about 10 or 11 years old, and my grandmother used to go to these um, library sales, and you could fill like a bag for like a dollar, and. <laughs> And she brought me back a box set of the red box of Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm sure she didn't know what it was. 
she probably was just like, oh, it has dragons. You know, Danielle would really like that. Um, so that was kind of my first exposure to role playing. And I used to read a lot of choose your own adventure books. And I used to read, uh, you know, all sorts of fantasy and, and all of that stuff. So I've always kind of had a, um, an interest in that as well. Um, and when I finally got to college, actually one of the first things I wrote was actually my own choose your own adventure book and it was Star Wars based. And I must've been like 12 or 13 or something. Um, so that was kind of like my first of, of doing it. But over the years, um, I got more into role playing when I was in college. And um, my first job, I knew I wanted to write for RPGs because I'd been playing in them for so long. And honestly, I just got started by following people in the industry on Twitter and Facebook and any social media that I could find. And eventually they started putting out open calls for writers. And so I would apply and I would send my stuff in. And eventually I got a chance uh, and did that. And that led to other opportunities. And that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> so leading up to that, so you said that you kind of got introduced by a fluke of nature that your grandma had bought you the D&D Redbox set. Uh, what other kind of RPGs did you play? Did you stick just to Dungeons and Dragons, or did you do like Girth, Rifts, uh, you know, Star Wars from uh, West End Games, or anything else like that? Oh my gosh! Um, I think it would be easier to talk about the ones that I have not played. <laughs> um, <laughs> God, I, God, I mean, I'm I'm like almost forty now, and I've been playing since I was a teenager, so. Um, I mean, I've played GURPS, I've played Rifts, I've played Call of Cthulhu, I've played Fate, I've played uh, Vampire, I've played All the White Wolf, I've played Aberrant, I've played One-Shot Games, I have of varying um, ones, I've played, oh gosh, Blue Rose, I've, I've played uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Buffy, we have a Buffy set because my husband loves Buffy, so we've played Buffy, we've played, there's even a Leverage game, if you remember the TV show Leverage, uh, we've played that, um, anything, anything, I, I've played I've played a lot of different ones, um, but my first was that introduction to D&D, and then when I got in college, I started playing White Wolf Vampire, so those were the first two that I really knew and got into, um, but I've played a ton over the years, a ton of different ones. I don't mean that to sound like, oh yes, but I mean I just sit there and think, wow, I've been I've been playing a lot over the years. But hey, it's fun. So, Danny, besides dragons, which are always really cool, what what actually drew you to the RPG games? What 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 inspired you to want to play them? What, you know, was it the fantasy element? Was it being able to kind of escape from everyday life? What really, you know, struck you and resonated with you? Telling stories, honestly. Um, I mean, I love fantasy, but I also love horror. I love sci-fi. I love swashbuckling. And I love so many genres. But really, for me, role-playing um, it's all about being able to tell a cool story um, and getting the effect of like reading a good book 
you know, when you're in a really good game and, and it's, it's really is like reading a really good book where story beats come together. And the cool part is, is that you're creating it, you know, you're not just reading what the author has done, but this is a character that you've created and you're making decisions that have affected this world. And it's kind of this really like bonding experience with the people at the table because you're all kind of creating this thing together. And so, you know, you'll, you'll have this story in your head and there'll be just a few other people who were there or remember it or had that experience. So, I mean, I just love, I love the stories. I mean, I love hearing people's gaming war stories, as we call it, of like cool things their character did or, you know, cool, cool witticisms that somebody got off in the middle of a battle or whatever, because that comes from you. It's, it's, it didn't exist before you, that character, that life, their, their, what they wanted didn't exist before yourself. I mean, that's what really got into it. And the bonus of like being able to have like magic powers or be a Jedi or fly a spaceship or, or anything else, or be a part of the cool worlds that you've just seen on TV. If you're playing a franchise game of some kind and creating your own stories in that world um, is really what got me into it. It's kind of the same thing. Like I kind of really liken it to, like I talked about reading the choose your own adventure books when I was a kid, but honestly, that's kind of what was kind of my gateway into it when role-playing was there when I was little, because I was, you know, reading those and making my own choices and feeling like I was making a difference in the book. And then, just likening that and not having the fetters of just go to page 106 or go to page 58, but being able to do whatever it was you wanted to do was really appealing to me. So, Danny, I've got kind of three related questions. They're kind of going to go in rapid succession here. Uh, the first one I have is, what, what is the proper term to describe what you do? Is it RPG writer, RPG designer? What is the proper nomenclature? Um, well, I it, it sort of um, depends on, on what I get hired to do for a particular um, game. Um, sometimes they'll have an outline, and you will be the writer um, for that, and they will have an outline, and you will kind of just be um, filling in the gaps. Um, other times they will hire you to actually kind of come up with what is in that particular section for a book and you will have a lot of um, imaginative freedom um, to actually design what goes into that particular thing, a magic system or um, a magic system or a, or a land or a people or a building or whatever it is they're asking you to create. Um, so that's more the designing aspect where you get like a lot of freedom to kind of create. But then if you're kind of writing, you will get, um, you know, heavily detailed outlines and you will write to that and you will have heavily, um, you know, like a, like a setting Bible kind of thing where you will look and be able to have like what's gone before. Um, so it kind of really depends. I've done both. I generally just call myself a freelance RPG writer slash designer because um, I've done both. Um, so, yeah, 
And so either one kind of works. Um, they're both a little, they're both have different aspects to it. Designing is a little more, I mean, both require a lot of creative, but designing I think is a little bit more creative freedom um, to do what you, whatever you would like or use your imagination to come up with whatever is in the section that you're going to be writing. So, so kind of going off that, I'm going to kind of mix these up a little bit. What, what do you mostly do? Let me ask for fun. Are you mostly a player? Or are you mostly like a dungeon master slash game master or what hat do you prefer to wear? Um, I do both. Uh, actually, currently I run a game and then my husband runs a game and I'm a player. So at this point I'm a, I'm a storyteller in one game and I am a player in the other. Um, I like both. I think they both um, have really um, cool aspects to it, um, whether you're, you're running a game or whether you're the player. Um, I think, you know, especially when you're designing, you have to design for both. Um, you have to give the players a lot of hooks and the GMs a lot of hooks to give the players so that they can jump off of whatever you've given them to create their own stories. So, so, so that kind of actually leads me perfectly to my kind of third question here is, you know, as a, when you're a game master and let's say you're not running off of a, a pre-made module, you know, you're kind of actually making your own adventure and composing it and so on and so forth. What is kind of the biggest difference between, you know, running your own campaign and making your own adventures uh, versus, you know, designing work for other companies. Now, I, you mentioned things like having, like, a, a Bible to work off of and other uh, stipulations, but, you know, how do you compare and contrast the two? Um, if, you're, if you're working with a really well-known property, um, your goals are kind of very different because your goal is to keep the same style the same atmosphere, the same um, the same tone, atmosphere, writing style, the same type of adventures, the same level of grittiness. So you're trying your job really then when you're writing in is you're still kind of creating new things, but you're creating new things into a very specific box of what people would expect. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing for, I've written for the Lord of the Rings franchise. I've done a book with them. And so with something like Lord of the Rings, which is, you know, obviously an extremely huge and extremely well-known property, um, when you get a section that you're working on, your job is to take what's ever known about that particular item already, whether it be a person or a place that's already been hashed out, or even if it's a new place, and make sure that it all fits in with the existing lore and that it all fits the same tone of what someone would expect from a Lord of the Rings game, the, the different language and stuff they use. Um, you know, so I've, I've worked with both Conan and I've worked with both Lord of the Rings, and you you change your... Uh, tone and style it's more about kind of 
putting pieces together so that they fit into a larger context of the franchise or the world that you're working in. When you're working on something completely new and you're given a lot of freedom, um, you, you have a lot more opportunity to kind of decide what the atmosphere is going to be and what the tone is going to be and what the style is going to be along with the other people who are working with you on the project and adding your own touch or the things that you would want to see into it, um, if that makes sense at all. Actually, it does. And that very last point is actually another question I wanted to ask is, you know, what's the distinct, you know, Danny attribute that you bring to all the different RPGs you work on? Like, like, you know, if you were a director, you know, you'd say, you know, I'm an auteur and, you know, I'm interested in this type of thing and all my movies have this element to it. So when it comes to working on all these different RPG properties and IPs, what's the distinct Danny thing that you bring to what you write in or design? Oh, wow. It's, it's a very good question. <laughs> oh, that's a very good question. Um, I, guess, I guess I would have to say that for me in particular, if, I, if I'm getting the opportunity to put something into a game, and, and I have a lot of freedom, and they say, hey, we want to see what you come up with for this. I always think to myself, what do I, as a player or as a writer, uh, a player, a writer, a GM, what would I want to see in this game if I were going to pick it up and want to play it? What would be most useful or most interesting for me as a player, a GM, um, someone who loves settings and worlds as a writer? And I find that I tend to go for I'm, – I'm much more of a, a story role player than anything else, um, which means that when I role play – I get way more involved in the story and what's happening and what my character's goals are than I do in what my stats are, like brawn and finesse or, or whatever stats that you happen to be using or what my numbers are. I tend to focus more on those things when I'm writing, and that's the things that I tend to get hired for is for those elements of the game that the people who are like me and really into like what is the history of this setting what is the history of this npc what is what are the things that i can use in my own story like maybe my character is an enemy of this npc or maybe they're an ally of this npc because they're really interesting and i want to fit them in that game if i'm writing that npc my job is to make sure and I, and I get freedom to write that NPC, my job would be to be like, I want to make this NPC so interesting and not necessarily likable or, you know, a, a good NPC, but somebody who's interesting enough that the player or the GM wants to incorporate them into the game. And to do that, I kind of go on what I would find interesting personally. So I guess that would be it, is that I, I tend to kind of go for things that kind of, try to give like a three-dimensional uh, feel to the world, I suppose. I mean, I work on so many different genres uh, that it's kind of hard to like say that I, you know, there's going to be like a dead body in every movie or something like that, like some, you know, directors or something might do. I don't really have like a, like a trademark other than I know the things that 
I like in characters, which tend to be characters who are kind of bigger than life or mysterious in some way and settings that are really unique or have some aspect to them that's kind of begging to be explored or the things that I like try to write into the settings and the people and the books that I work on. So, Danny, uh, you mentioned how uh, you like to do a lot of, you know, try to dig into the background. How much research do you do uh, given, you know, in both uh, writing scenarios? If you're given an outline where you have a Bible uh, that kind of sets everything out, how much more research do you do uh, for that kind of uh, writing versus when you are the designer and you basically have carte blanche to write your world? Um, I, I like to. I mean, if, if something is, if I'm told explicitly, because sometimes you'll get, um, you know, within your little outline, they'll say, you know, it might be like a paragraph or two sometimes, and it will say, you know, we're heavily, if they have some idea and some direction of the type of culture or a myth that they're working on or a type of character they're working towards, then I will look at that character, um, research that particular character. If I'm given complete carte blanche um, and just be like, you know, we want something to do this and this, but other than that, you know, see what you can do. I really like to mash up things that I know. Um, so I'll take myths and smash them together with something else, like a like a literary character. Um, you know, I'll I'll take something like you know Egyptian uh, folklore and I'll and I'll mash it together with you know. Captain Jack Sparrow or something. I really like taking two things and kind of putting them together in an interesting way. If I get Clark Blanche, that's going to like fit into what I'm being asked to do, you know, kind of like I'm going to take a little bit from here or I'm going to take a little bit from here or, Hey, I remember reading an article about this cool thing a while ago. I'm going to take that and use it. So if it's something that the editors and the line developer has told me, may want to base it off of, I will research that. But if it's just myself, I will, I will generally try to pick a couple of things and then I might um, look them up a little bit and go off what I know, but I still want it to be unique to me. Um, so I won't do it that much so that it kind of turns into this own unique thing. And generally nobody, I've nev not had anybody yet tell me that they were able to tell what I mashed together. So, um, <laughs> I guess it's working so far. Well, so I guess I the answer that, is it depends. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, that shows your artistry as a writer to be able to mash up the characters to the point that, you know, people can't necessarily point to, oh, well, I, I think it's these characters that you've mashed together. Um, with regards to character development and the hero's journey, do you look to... Uh, like Joseph Cam Campbell's uh, monomyth uh, and his 17 or 18 uh, points as far as developing that character's, you know, uh, that's really 
think it's really funny you mentioned that because I I actually have a copy of that book right within my view right now of uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, I use it in the general sense of because when you're writing an RPG, the ultimate idea is that people are going to take it and play it and make their own adventures. Um, so my job really is to put things in there that will set them off on their adventure. So I will use um, little elements of things that Campbell uses in his books. You know, basically what I'm doing is I'm putting in little calls to adventure um, in in the setting and in the NPC. Um, like let's just, for example, let's say I'm writing a, I'm writing a, a pirate NPC. I guess I have Jack Sparrow on my mind. But let's say I'm writing a pirate NPC. And, you know, I write a description of their personality and what they look like. And in their description, I'll put something in there along the lines of, you know, and every once in a while he will look out to sea as if he's missing something important to him. And he looks very, very sad upon occasion, which is much different from his usual jovial kind of crude manner. So my job is to into, it's put those things in there so that the player or the GM might go, oh, what is it he's sad about? And the GM might be able to come up with something and say, oh, yeah, I can use this. I'm going to say that they're sad about, um, you know, their lost love they had to leave behind when they were a teenager and went out to sea and stuff like that, you know. Or if the character asks about it, and wants to know about that. It's like, hey, maybe I know this character and I know why they're sad and that can get me involved. It's really about placing those kind of little calls to adventure and the other things of like stepping over the doorway or how the world was and how it might be to allow them to go on their own hero's journey. It seems like there's really, uh, you know, a... Uh a talent to basically give enough, but not so much that, uh, you know, you basically box the player. So um, that's very interesting. Um, one of the things I'm curious about, kind of from the other side with regards to audiences, uh, you know, in the last, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to date myself, but I can remember when I was a teenager many years ago, um, I had a boyfriend that was a Dungeons and Mouse, Dungeons and Dragons DM, and you know it was it was only the game that guys played. But now it's much more. I think you know women are are role playing and and playing these games. How has it changed for you as a writer to uh, be more in, inclusive uh, to the the changing demographics of RPG players? Oh, man. Um, it's been awesome, I have to tell you, because there are so many games out there now. So many games that are not only, that not only do a wide variety of people play, but a wide variety of people write. I mean, you know, back in the day when, you know, Chainmail, the first iteration of D&D, and then D&D were the only things that, we, that were available. 
it's a very specific type of thing. D&D started out as kind of a war game simulation game. So it was a lot of numbers, a lot of figuring out distance, a lot of this, that, and the other thing. And it's only through time that it kind of evolved into this storytelling um, thing that I have. And because it's kind of developed more aspects to its personality as role-playing has, like, matured as a hobby, and we say, oh, we don't just have to use dice or we don't just have to use this measuring thing. There are so many things we can use. There are games out there that use tarot cards, that use playing cards, that don't use dice at all, that use specific kinds of dice, two dice, coins, anything that you can think of. And the possibilities having opened up have just made the game so much more accessible and making different games have just made for so many different types of stories that people want to play. If you want a high adventure story, you go have yourself a high adventure story. If you want a horror story, you can have the darkest horror story you can imagine. I have a game called little fears and I am telling you, it comes with trigger warnings because it is, but like whatever you're into, if you're into hardcore sci-fi, if you're into romance, like a very romantic kind of thing, you can even do like pride and prejudice level kind of, um, you know, Victorian era role playing if you want to, like anything that you can think of, which brings so many people with so many interests. Like there, I truly believe that there is a game out there for anybody to get into role playing and it's just getting better and better and better if you ask me. Well, I think it's a good uh, transition point to talk about uh, the actual properties that you've worked on. Uh, we're about halfway through the show right now, so I think it's a good opportunity now to, to kind of pimp the work that you've done. Um, so I was hoping we can ask you a couple questions about some of the stuff that you've actually created or worked on and what you did. And, and any time, you know, I know that some of the projects you're working on are like currently being kickstarted or they're forthcoming out, so Anytime you can't like reveal something, we can always uh, skip something. Uh, <laughs> I first, I'm fighting at the big bit to ask about Tor, but I actually want to ask about something else first because, you know, Hercules, who's hosting the show, he is a huge, huge, huge Conan fan. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what work that you did for Conan. Uh, according to your website, you know, it's some sort of a sorcery card deck. So what is that? What did you do for Conan? I actually, okay, so this is really, this was actually, that was actually like a really new experience for me. Um, I got hired to, um, they're putting out a deck of sorcery cards that are, go, that are sort of like a playing aid for some of the information that's in the book, um, rather than having to look up stuff in the book um, for things that you can use while playing Conan. Um you uh, have these cards that you can just use and flip through and have the information right at hand in front of you. And so my job is actually to take the information from the Conan book and consolidate it to a word count on a certain number of cards. It was actually very interesting because it wasn't so much a, a creative, but it was very interesting because it was it really I'm, I'm a very type A personality. So it was a really cool, like, mind challenge for me of, like, how do I consolidate this information 
onto a card that only has so many words so that people will be able to to use it in the game if they're playing Conan. All right, that's so cool. All right, I've got to ask about Torg because that's, <laughs> that's my theme. So, so I, I was first introduced to Torg back in high school, and I thought, you know, this is after playing some D&D for a while, and I just love the idea that, you know, the Earth is being invaded by all these cosms, you know, like, pulp uh, action in the Nile, living land in the United States, Britain is now fantasy and all that cool stuff. And when I was in college, when West End Games was kind of closing shopping, liquidating all their assets, you know, I scooped in and I bought so many Torg source books for pennies. And I was just so enchanted at that world. And I tried to do a, um, a campaign session with some of my college friends. It never quite panned out. They hated the setting. But then I find out, oh, my God, my friend Danny is working on the new iteration of Torque. So my eyes have turned into stars. You have to tell me uh, how you got into Torque and, you know, what you, you're you working on for it. Oh, okay. Um, Actually, this is all due to convention networking. <laughs> um, I met Daryl Hayhurst, um, who is the one that's kind of um, been in charge of the Torg uh, reboot. I met him at Gen Con, um, you know, the big gaming convention in Indianapolis, which is going on next week, and I'm not going to, but I'm not jealous at all, I promise. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. Totally believe that. Um, and I met him there, and he gave me his card. Uh, we became friends on Facebook, and... He needed writers to write um, missions, Delphi missions for Torg. And he was like, hey, do you want to be one of the uh, backer levels for Torg? And I was like, yes, I would love to do that. So he basically gave me just a little bit of information. Honestly, all I got was um, it's going to be in the Isle Cosm, you know, which is, of course, the high fantasy um, up in, you know, the England area, and it's high fantasy, and we kind of want to incorporate uh, real places if possible. But other than that, just any kind of adventure that the Storm Knights might go on. So um, I wrote an adventure called No Man's Dragon, and it takes place on the Isle of Wight, and uh, just off the coast of England, and where a dragon has taken over the island and the forces of both light and darkness are trying to, to oust this dragon from this island. So I'm so excited for that, um, for the listeners out there, you know, Torg is in its final like day of being kickstarted. It has raised about a zillion dollars. So you know, go in and like chip in for that, so you can get the the uh, the stretch goal that Danny has worked on, and I'm so excited to see that. Yes, yeah. yes. The uh, the campaign ends tomorrow morning uh, Pacific time. I think like around seven or seven thirty. So for listeners, you definitely want to go take a look tonight and um, do do your campaigning tonight. <laughs> yeah, and I will say to you that like. No lie, not just because I, but like you get a lot for the backer levels on that Kickstarter for sure. You get a lot of bang for your buck on there, so it's definitely worth it. 
Um, so, yeah, definitely get yeah. in on that because it is ending soon, ending very soon. Yes, we, we, we have done our part. We have contributed to the, the Kickstarter. I'm a huge fan of ancient Egypt, so um, Nick was kind enough to put that on the add-ons uh, for that campaign, so I'm very excited. Uh, I yeah. don't think I've played Torg, have I? We have not played Torg. Our, my Torg stuff is in storage right now, and I'm afraid to get it out because I don't know how compatible it is with the new Torg, so eh, we'll wing it. We'll be doing some Torg sessions soon enough. Yep. So one of the awesome. that you so one of the games that you worked on a lot with is the Seventh Sea. What is that game, and what have you done with it? Oh my gosh, Seventh um, Sea is. I, I mean, this is a game that started back in the in the nineties uh, or early two thousands, and um, John Wick, uh, the owner. Um, got the rights back for it. It had gone, the rights had, had gone away and he got the rights back for it. And um, he went on Kickstarter to, to get a new second edition of seven C going. And he ended up getting like $1.2 million, I think to restart it. It was huge at the time. It was the biggest RPG Kickstarter at the time, I mean, there's been a few that surpassed it since then, but at the time, it was the biggest one at the at the time. And he was looking for writers to help with the second edition. And Seven C is swashbuckling with magic. I like to say that it's picture every country in Europe, Spain, France, England, everywhere, and picture them at the height of their Renaissance and add magic and that's seven c i mean you're you're swinging on sand chandeliers you are uh dagger riding down sails you are you know <laughs> saving nobility you are you are crushing you know foul fiends and scoundrels and it's just really like you are you are heroes and you are like bigger than life heroes and it's um Completely, completely fun and just, you know, just audacious and flamboyant and and a really awesome setting. Um, I have worked on their Secret Societies book. There are secret societies in the world, and I wrote um, the section on one of the secret societies and kind of updating it for second edition. Um, and I worked on their uh, Land of Golden Fire. I worked on uh, one of the secret societies for that. Um, I did, uh, let me think, and I also did, I also did some um, weapons specialization um, rules and systems for their uh, colonies, their, their colonies book that will be coming out. And I've also done some um, magic for their Cities of Faith um, Iskandar book. Um, I created a uh, system of magic for people who want to use it um, that is going to be in that book. Um, yeah. That's what I can, that's what I think is out that I, that I've worked on or that's going to be out that I can 
mention I've worked on. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Danny, that uh, I was thinking about as you were talking, how much uh, do you tap into your anthropology degree uh, with regards to your writing today? This is probably not going to surprise you, but a ton. Uh, I mean, a ton, because what a lot of what I do is setting and people and how uh, the world works. And so having studied anthropology, which is the study of culture, um, really helped me to kind of try, I feel like I use it a lot to try to make sure that my setting or my place is going to be realistic. You know, if, if people live in a desert climate, what sorts of things would they value? What sorts of things would be important to them? What times of year would be important to them? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is all anthropology and studying anthropology and how groups of people behave. I mean, I really like to say that, that RPG, writing for RPGs, the stuff that I do, is really just playing in a sandbox as a writer without all those pesky characters getting in the way with plot. It's basically being able to, like, build worlds, you know, build worlds, build a land, and build setting, and build magic into it, and build a history. And and that, I mean, for that, my anthropology degree has been immensely useful, because it really is nothing but the study of cultures, and then you're writing about a culture, but instead of one that was real, you're, it's one that you get to get to make up and kind of go where whatever leads you wherever that train of thought leads you. Yeah. Are there magazines or journals that you read uh, to kind of keep your ideas fresh and, you know, researching some of the cultures that, you know, just kind of like the various uh, advancements in our knowledge of uh, ancient civilizations, for example, how do you kind of keep abreast of that changing knowledge? Honestly, I've, I try to, um, I mean, my feed, uh, on my social media has become where I kind of get cool articles about stuff like that because, I mean, mostly my friends are writers and they'll share all sorts of interesting articles about cultures and stuff like that. And that's not just limited to RPG people, but just, you know, writers in general and the ones I have on Facebook um, you know, they'll often, you know, share articles about cultures that are fascinating, you know, so I often go down, you know, those rabbit holes and read, you know, those things and that all kind of, you know, just percolates in there until like it comes out into something that I'm working on. So, Danny, we've talked about some of the IPs that you've worked on for other people, uh, Torg, yes, and Conan, and 7C, but um, if I'm not mistaken, you've actually created your own uh, games, such as something for Paper Arcade. What is that? I, I did. Paper Arcade, um, it's on Kickstarter now, and um, it's, a, it's, a small, it's a small project. Um, they're only looking to raise uh, $2,000. And what it is, is it's actually four uh, tabletop role-playing games, four small ones, 
um, based around the theme and based around the idea of kind of a um, collective of RPG designers and creators. Um, the issue, Paper Arcade Volume 1, um, will have four games in it, uh, one by myself and three other really fantastic designers. And they are all uh, around the theme of card playing card-based mechanics. So all the um, games that we created, we all used playing cards as the system. And there are, there are four uh, games, and mine is Elements in Harmony. And the idea is that there are, you are the players. It's for four players. And you are elemental knights, earth, air, fire, water. And you are in service to the elemental queens who are sisters and have been feuding for many, many years. And the game I created was the knights who have been brothers in arms and respect each other are trying to get the queens to a peace conference so that they can kind of end their bickering and fighting. And so you, the four players as the knights, will play cards um, that are events to get the queen in queens into the center to the peace treaty and bring piece to the land and depending on what cards you play um different things happen and that was one that i that i created for this and that that one also is on kickstarter right now as well so we're kind of getting down to the last the last 10 minutes of the show and i think i've got kind of one big big question left uh we'll see how that goes but you know since you've worked on a lot of different ips uh ranging a lot of different genres what would you say, you don't have to actually name IPs here if you don't want to, but, you know, this is an either-or question. Um, what would you say has been kind of the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome working on the different uh, RPGs out there, all alternatively, or both, is what's the biggest thing that you've learned while working in the RPG industry? Uh, the biggest, the most valuable and and the challenge for me and hopefully I've gotten better at it um, as I've gotten, you know, more into and doing more projects, but was um, basically learning how to do how this collaborative process works and communication. And each company has different, they'll have different uh, requirements and different ways that they work. And so part of the challenges is being able to, especially if you're working on two different projects at a time, um, to be able to navigate kind of two different systems of working. Um, for example, one company may want the whole thing finished. You know, you, you have your word count, you have your outline, you have your deadline, and you will work. And when it's done, uh, you turn in your draft. Other companies will do milestones. Um, you will turn in this portion on this date, this portion on this date. We will turn in edits. You will turn in edits by this date, et cetera, et cetera. And there's nothing wrong with working every way, but it's it's just a matter of learning and remembering and knowing how each company works and how each likes to communicate. Some prefer email. Some do Discord. Um, some have other means of communicating, like Slack. And just basically kind of navigating those systems and how they want to communicate. And also, more importantly, not just in the practical sense, 
but how they communicate what they're looking for so that you can deliver up to their expectations so that you can ask the proper questions about what they're looking for so that when you write, you are kind of on the same page, essentially, and learning how to ask those questions and learning, uh, you know, when you need to ask a question, just to make sure that when you deliver the product, it's, it's what they're expecting and fits in with the bigger project, because you are, after all, only a a small part of a bigger project. You know, it's not like if you're writing a book or a short story where you're kind of the be all end all and the buck stops here. You're kind of part of a bigger puzzle and a bigger picture that all kind of has to fit together. And so you need to coordinate with everyone else to make sure your piece fits and is cohesive with everything else. So I think that's the biggest challenge and the biggest uh, difference for me um, learning to write for RPGs and writing for them as opposed to something else like short stories or novels. Uh, that's interesting. Danny, I think I have a couple of questions to go um, as we wind down. One, um, can you kind of give a ballpark figure of what a person can expect pay-wise? With regards to writing versus being a designer, um, we'll start there, and then I'll I'll ask my other questions. Okay. Um. Yeah. I mean, uh, pay ranges uh, depending on the company. Um. You know, if you're a writer, um, it's just kind of like regular uh, short story writing. You'll get paid by the word. Um. Most of the time, so ranging from point oh three cents a word, three cents a word, up to five cents a word. If you're designing, if you're doing a little more work, more development meetings, um stuff like that, um, you might get a little bit more. That's the normal. Um, some companies also do uh, flat fees or um, other types of systems. Some will ask you, you know, some will email and they'll say, you know, this is what we offer for first-time writers. Or some will say, what's your pay rate? And they'll ask you and then you might negotiate. So it so it ranges, but in general, it's not that much different um, than, you know, writing a, a short story and getting paid per word if a publication picks it up, in general. <laughs> but you also get paid comp copies as well, right? Yes, yes. Most of the time, um, you'll either get PDFs or hard copies, uh, depending on the contract. Yeah, exactly. Um. I would love to hear, Danny, uh, what is your dream RPG project? <sighs> okay. Uh, I dream one day that I will be able to write a really, really kind of body horror-ish Cronenberg-type horror RPG <laughs> for the real gorehounds in the world. I... I <laughs> I mean, there are horror RPGs um, for sure, and a lot of them will have, like, body horror in it. But I would really love to write something in the horror genre and do something um, with that and have just, like, really cool kind of, like, uh, Geiger-esque art maybe just really, um, you know. It would be really cool. I, I think it would be really cool to have just, like, this kind of – uh, you know, world like something, something Hellraiser esque, uh, 
you know, something like that. I'd either love to work on something like that or create something like that myself because after all, I'm I'm a, I'm a horror person at heart, honestly. <laughs> I, I hope uh, you're able to get more uh, work with Torg because one of the invading causes in Torg is called the Tharkhold, and it's basically, a, you know, a Hellraiser-type uh, reality invading Russia. So, oh, man, if you could write an adventure for that, that would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. I may have to ask about that. Because they haven't done that one yet. So that would be upcoming at some point. So, <laughs> Well, Danny, we are down to the last five minutes, and we'd love to give you a couple of minutes or a minute or two to tell, tell our, our listeners where they can find you on social media. Um, can they reach out to you if they have additional questions with regards to writing RPG and being a designer? Um, and also to plug your Kickstarters, because you've got a couple of them going on out there. Yep. I, I do. Um, well, you can find me at DanielleDelisle.com. That's my website um, that has all my social media on it as well. On Twitter, I am at Danielle Delisle. So my website and my Twitter are uh, my, my handles. Uh, for my website and my Twitter. I would love questions. If people had follow-up questions or they wanted to, to ask me things, I mean, they absolutely can uh, get with me on Twitter or my email is on my website as well, along with my Facebook page, um, which is uh, D.L. Delisle on Facebook. I have like a Facebook page. Um, yeah, and what I'm working on now, I've got the three Kickstarters. We do have the Torg, which is getting into its last um, hours, and it's going, and we're super excited about it because these products look super nice. I, I, will, I will tell you, they look super nice, and you get a lot, so definitely check that out. Um, the second one I have going on is Paper Arcade, which I described, which is four uh, indie games um, by four designers and it's really um you know a small it's ten dollars get you a buy-in and uh you can get these four games and get a lot of entertainment out of it the third one i'm a part of is called demigods and i'm writing an adventure uh for it uh to help a uh, to help uh get get players and and uh storytellers an idea of how to uh things they can do with their game it is um, think Rick Reardon or Good Omens, American Gods. It's kind of modern mythology, but every myth exists together at the same time. So I think of it as like Rick Reardon's Percy Jackson series, um, Good Omens or American Gods, or even a manga called Pantheon High. Um, really cool, uh, really cool. So like you can be like any pantheon you want and be a demigod, and that one's super awesome. So those are kind of the three Kickstarters I have going on now. And I am also working on an Ironbound Adventures, which is kind of a Wicca-based role-playing game where people play uh, Wiccan warriors. And that one's going to be really cool. And that's been around on Twitter a little bit, just discussing it and stuff like that. So that's, that's what I've got going on at the moment. Um, so just a little bit. <laughs> They're going to cut us off in less than a minute. 
Um, I want to thank you uh, to all of you. I learned a lot, and I posted as many of the links as I could. Uh, whatever I've missed, you're welcome to uh, post them. Oh, thank well, you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful to have you on, and we'll definitely have to revisit you down the road. I feel like we had a lot more questions. Absolutely. I'd love that. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, thanks for having all of us uh, tonight, Hercules. Uh, we'll tune in uh, next month. Uh, thank you, uh, Danny, for also being on, and we wish everyone a great new week. Thank you very much. Uh, t- um, and uh, you're welcome back anytime, Danny. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Mm-hmm.